In our last podcast, we talked about how history helps us determine the truth of the biblical documents. Now, if that's true, doesn't history do that for all religions? And if that's the case, why do Christians think their sacred books are any different than the sacred scripture of other religions? Aren't they all the same anyways? Some people would say just slightly different messages, but all leading to the same God. Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805. This is part of our series on truth and history, and today we're going to talk about the historical uniqueness of the Christian Bible. The questions that I ask in the introduction are incredibly important because, as we showed last time, and please do take time to listen to that podcast if you haven't already, history provides an anchor to tie what we believe to be true with events in the outside world. This tying together of things in scripture with things in true history is what I've termed historical anchors. Now, if these anchors exist, they may not be the final proof of the faith, and they certainly aren't all that's required for a person to follow that faith, but I would say that they are a very good foundation, a good starting point. Now, what were some of the anchors that we looked at? Here's just a brief review. We look at when something was written. The closer it is to the actual event, the more likely that it's true. Historians look at that all the time. If someone writes about something a few years after it happened, it's much more likely to be accurate than if the history about the event wasn't composed hundreds or maybe even thousands of years later. This helps us determine whether something happened in real history or it's just a historical myth. Next, we look at who wrote it. Can we identify the author and verify their credibility? This is extremely important, too, because if someone actually knew the main characters, was close to them, if we have records of the person who wrote it outside, again, of the historical, excuse me, outside of the sacred text, it's much more likely if we have a person, the author that's verified, probably what they wrote is truer than, again, if we don't know, if we have no idea who the author is, if all of that's lost are part of myth and legend. The third thing is where did the events take place? Are they real places that we can go to that we can identify today? Now that might seem really obvious, but it isn't always apparent in some of the different texts, and and you'll see the answer to that as we go along. In summary, is there a verification of the people, the places, and who wrote it outside of the sacred text? Are these things verified in secular history? Now, this is, again, much more than just an academic exercise. As I shared earlier, I'm not doing this as a history professor or as an expert on all things biblical. I'm doing this as a fellow pilgrim who truly had a crisis of faith when after I grew up in the church, I needed to find out for myself if I was following what I kind of called the party line, what I'd always been taught by people I really deeply loved and respected, or if what I was taught was actually true, and if it could be trusted as the basis for how to live my life and what would happen to me after I died. Now, after extensive research and graduate school in history and theology, I came to the conclusion that the Christian faith had adequate historical support for me to put my faith in Jesus. But then I faced another very troubling question. 
I assumed that if other people trusted their eternal destiny to other scriptures, I assumed they'd have the same historically verified facts, that they could go back and that there would be these historical anchors that tied their faith to true history, to true teachings, to true people. And then I panicked. What if they did? How would I know what was right then? How could I make up my mind? Now, I had a basic overall, you know, sort of, you know, the brochure version understanding of other religions, but I hadn't really looked at them. I hadn't really looked particularly at their scriptures. And as a trained historian, I know you have to go back to the original documents if you want to know what people really think or believe or, or, or whatever. you got to go back and look at them. I hadn't really done that. Now, I have to admit part of it, as I look back, I was really kind of a faith coward. I wasn't sure I wanted to read them because I didn't want to shake my faith. Um, I, I, what, you know, what if they really were true and what if they could be verified and you know, all this kind of stuff. But again, I wanted to know the truth. So with, um, as Kierkegaard uses the term fear and trembling, I started really deeply researching various faiths and deeply reading and studying their documents. Much more research followed, much more study, and also too, I, I did this with primarily non-Christian sources. I went to the different sources where if I was, I was studying Hinduism, I wanted to see what the Hindus said. If I was studying Buddhism, I wanted to see what the Buddhists said. I didn't want to, again, um, and, and forgive me if I'm sounding so terribly cynical, I just didn't want to follow the party line. You know, I didn't want to see what Christians had already digested and said about it. I wanted to see what the different religions said about themselves. So that's what I did. And then after a number of years of study, I was honestly amazed at how different the Christian historical anchors are for the Christian faith as compared to those for other religions. Now, once again, this does not mean just because these historical anchors are there that the Christian faith is more valid that people should believe in it just because it's historically verified. But once again, I would say that this is a very, very good foundation. Now, obviously, in looking at other religions, we could talk about this for many hours. And this is actually going to be probably the longest podcast that I'll have in this series. It's also not an um, in-depth discussion of other religions. I selected four major ones that we are going to go over very briefly. And what I will do is I will look at the historical verification that we have for these religions. I'll do it first. And by the way, the, the four that we're going to do, we're going to do Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and Mormonism. Now we're going to first I'll talk about Hinduism and Buddhism and then the second part of this will be about Mormonism and Islam. Now again this is not exhaustive, it's not complete, it won't tell you everything you want to know but it will give you a very good basis. Please do go to the Bible805.com website and I will have a number of resources on there and I'll be putting on more all the time. 
I'm hoping to get a little newsletter set up so you can find out what other things are on there. So go check that out and you will get additional information. Now, for this podcast, though, here are the topics that we are going to cover. First of all, I will give you a brief overview of the religion. I trust that it is an accurate one, though it is a brief summary. The focus that we are going to have on that summary, on that overview, is what is the plan of salvation for that particular religion. It's kind of, in you might say in a crass way, it's the what's in it for me. Um, how do you find meaning in this life by following that religion? And I think very importantly, how do they define or explain or tell you how to live in such a way that you can guarantee a good life after this life, life after death? Next, we will look at the scriptures upon which the religion and these beliefs are based. Why do they believe what they believe? How do they know it's true? In that, I'm going to analyze the historicity of their sacred documents. And I will look at, I'll give you an analysis of what historical anchors they provide. And finally, and probably most important of all, what is the view of each religion of the Savior, of any Savior. Does it have a Savior? Or is it all just about you? And what do they say about Jesus? It's interesting as you study different religions because they all believe he lived. There isn't a one that doesn't have good things to say about Jesus. But which account of Jesus, which view of Jesus, because there are very, very different ones, is accurate simply based on history outside of the sacred documents. So let's get started now with Hinduism. Now Hinduism is fascinating. It is one of the oldest religions. There is no specific founder of it. They can't point back to a certain individual and say this is the person that started Hinduism like you can of course later on we'll talk about Islam and Muhammad was the founder of of Islam. But it's not like that with Hinduism. It originated in India as an identifiable religion about the same time Abraham lived. But we're not totally sure because literally for um, a couple thousand years actually, we don't really have a whole lot of writing. We, we just don't have much written down about it. Lots of legends, lots of stories, and we'll get to that in a minute. But we're not real sure exactly of how it got started. Now, early on, though, in Hinduism, it broke into many different areas. There are four main ones, but all of them do hold some beliefs in common. One of their key beliefs, probably the key belief, is that the individual self, you as a person, they call that the Atman, is one with the impersonal cosmic consciousness of the universe that's known as Brahman. So a frequent saying in Hinduism is Atman is Brahman, Brahman is Atman. A very secular translation of this would be simply to say uh, how it's kind of come down in popular culture is either that you are a god or the god is in you. It's this identification of the uh, spiritual self of you with the overall spiritual force of the universe. 
humanity's primary problem, then, according to the Hindus, is that humanity does not realize that they are one with the divine force. And because of that, they don't live in ways that they should, and so they are trapped on an endless cycle of death and reincarnation. Now, the goal of the religion is to become one with the cosmic consciousness of the universe. That's called moksha. Now, this liberation, or moksha, from samsara, which is the endless cycle of death and rebirth, is what all Hindus try to attain. This is, you might say, their idea of salvation. Now, there are different paths to lead to this realization and unity with the cosmic oneness. There's the path of duty, the path of knowledge, and the path of devotion, which is an unconditional surrender to one of the many gods that are worshipped in the Hindu religion. If you do not achieve moksha, which in some ways is is described as dissolving into nothingness, like a drop of water falling into the ocean, if you don't achieve that in a particular lifetime, that's when the law of karma kicks in. And that's where one's deeds in a previous life determine whether you will be reborn in the next life in either a higher or lower state, either animal or human, higher or lower caste, and you try again. Now, the the next question that we're going to answer is, why do Hindus believe this? Where did they get these ideas? What are their scriptures upon which they, they found their theology and their way of living? The Hindu scriptures are organized into three major groups. First, I'm going to give you their names. Then I will describe them, and then I will read you a few examples from them. Now, this is just the most extremely brief of overviews of Hindu scriptures. There are thousands and thousands of them. They are not collected into one singular book like Christians have their Bible. There are just many, many, many of them. But the three major areas are the Vedas, the Upanishads, and the Bhagavad Gita. Now the Vedas, these are the oldest hymns, rituals. These are believed by Hindus to not really have a beginning or an author. They are they're believed that they are eternal. Now let me just have one little parenthesis here that's very important to understand a difference between the, um, the Hindu and Buddhist religions. Actually, quite a few religions and Christianity, and that is that for Hinduism, there is no beginning to history. Matter, the gods, some sort of beings have always existed to them. For them, existence is an eternal cycle. There is no beginning and no end. Uh, For Christianity, we have a very distinct beginning. In the beginning, God created. There will be an end when he will say time is no more. But the Hindu view is very, very different. And so the Vedas literally were always there, always there to guide humanity. The Upanishads, then they're more recent, but they're still quite ancient. And even one of the one of the Hindu commentaries that I read said there's no fixed list of the Upanishads, as newer ones are constantly being composed. Whenever older Upanishads do not suit the founders of a new sect, they composed new ones. These are in some ways more commentary by a particular guru on how you apply the different different Hindu beliefs. And then the Bhagavad Gita, this 
is a story primarily of a battle involving Krishna, who is one of the many, many gods of the Hindu religion, and related stories that illustrate beliefs, teach actions, and just show how a good Hindu is supposed to live. Now, let me read you a few examples. For example, from the Upanishads, there are many things that are like this where they're almost liturgical sayings. And I'm quoting, I undertake the training of the training rule to abstain from taking life. I undertake the training rule to abstain from stealing. stealing. I undertake the training rule. And it goes on and on about many different ways that one should live. Um, Many uh, ways of practicing Hinduism involve extreme self-denial. And so you have different repetitious scriptures that enforce these beliefs. Now, one of the things that was very interesting when I was reading about Hinduism, one commentator said, and I I thought this was so interesting, um, he said, when you meet another Hindu, you don't say, what do you believe? But what you say is, what do you practice? What path have you chosen? Because in the Hindu religion, there are many paths. As I I mentioned earlier, you can have either self-denial or devotion to a particular god, such as Krishna, or there's just many things. And so he said that it's the living out of your beliefs that's what's most important. Really, what the scriptures say or... um, you know, what particular group you're with, that's not nearly as important as what path do you take. And I, I think that's just a challenge to all of us. Can our lives really illustrate what path we're taking? Do we live out what we say? I do think it's important that our, our scriptures have a historical basis, but um, then is, are we sort of, you might say, writing that kind of history in our own life? Now, I better get back to what I'm talking about because um, I, I could get distracted, but, but I, I did think that was a very good challenge. Now then, there is a wonderful little story here that I want to read you out of the Bhagavad Gita. This is an example of karma. And, uh, well, let me just read it. There was once a king. One day, when he was going to the forest for hunting, he took his son and two hunting dogs along with him. When he reached the forest, he released one dog to chase a rabbit. And then it goes on, there's a number of things talking about that. And then it explains what was actually happening. Kashiva was the most cruel of men. This is what sort of the backstory is to what they're seeing now. His wife's name was Villabalana. She was a very loose lady who always enjoyed the company of other men. For this reason, her husband became very angry and killed her. In her next life, she became that dog, and Kashiva, due due to his sinful activities, became that rabbit. And here you see karma acted out. He was a really mean man. Now, she sort of wasn't very moral herself, so she she became a dog, but he was even worse because he killed her, and so he became the rabbit, and she got to chase him. <laughs> so this is, of course, an example of how you do want to treat people nicely, or you never know what's going to happen. Now, let's look at the Hindu scriptures' historical evaluation. Again, they believe that they existed in divine in divine form, though the world might be destroyed and reborn and start another cycle, the scriptures always existed. Now, some believe that they go back to 5500 BC, but probably, well, the thing is in world history, cuneiform writing, neither cuneiform writing nor Egyptian pictographic writing 
would be invented for another at least 2,000 years. So if they did exist, then it was in the form of legend and things that were just verbally passed down. Um, Hindus do accept, of course, oral tradition and verbally uh, transmitting stuff down. Now, most of the written uh, copies of any Hindu scriptures that we have are actually really relatively recent. Most of them come from 15 to 1600 AD. This was a time of learning in the medieval manus in the medieval monasteries, and they were writing down a lot of things. There are some possible scraps of text from 800 AD or so, but there is no, absolutely no archaeological or historical verification of any of the manuscripts. We have no idea who wrote them, when they were written where they were written, well, probably general part of the world um, in, in India, but we really don't know. The stories about Shiva and Krishna and Rama and Hunaman and the literally hundreds of other deities, there is, there, there's no history of any of them outside of the religion. Again, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of pages, variations, different ones are used by different groups. Now, based simply on what Hindus themselves would acknowledge. Their scriptures are based on legend, on myth, and on tradition. It's up to the individual follower to choose which path they want to follow in this life. But there are no historical anchors, really none whatsoever for any of their scriptures. And Hindus would agree with that, but they would say it's not really important. To the Hindus, let's now look at how they view Jesus. Now, it's very interesting because to Hindus, when Jesus said, the Father and I are one, he confirmed the Hindu belief that everyone, through rigorous spiritual practices, can realize his own universal God consciousness. They would point to that and say, see, you know, Atman is Brahman, Brahman is Atman. Jesus said, the Father and I are one. They believe also that Jesus was an incarnation of the divine. He was a guru. He was an avatar, which is also an incarnation of Vishnu. That he was a son of God, but here's where it gets different. They would say, just like you and I are sons of God. So they would say that he is, but so is everybody. And they say, too, that his death does not atone for sin, and he did not rise from the dead. These are not considered important or really anything that a guru would do. There's also a number of tra uh, Hindu traditions that say the teenage Jesus traveled across Southeast Asia learning to be a, a learning yoga and the yogic traditions and then he returned home to be a guru to the Jews. But there is absolutely no evidence historically anywhere that this is true. Now, these and other beliefs about Jesus do not agree with any known historical teachings that Jesus gave or any practices that he promoted. What they do is they take practices and beliefs that are important to Hindus and attribute them to Jesus. Now, that might be very well-meaning, and uh, Hindus would by and large say very good things about Jesus, but they are not accurate historically. Next, we come to Buddhism. Now, we do have a specific founder of Buddhism, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, who was born, we're not really sure, either between 563 or 480 BC. We're not 
sure exactly when he was born, but he lived about 80 years. Now, this, just to give you sort of an idea of what was going on elsewhere, this is near the end of the Old Testament history. Um, the Jews had returned to the land after the Babylonian captivity, and shortly thereafter, there was what we call the 400 silent years in Jewish and Christian history. So, we don't really have any idea pretty much what was going on during this time during the old well we do have some with the maccabees and some of these other things but it wasn't really a significant time for the christian religion so let's just focus on the buddhists at this particular moment now it has a very similar theology in the ideas of reincarnation and the goal of enlightenment, this idea of that you want to end reincarnation. But Hinduism and Buddhism are very, very different in that there is no creator deity in Buddhism. In Hinduism, there are many, many, many gods. In Buddhism, they are not gods. Um, Buddha, The Buddha was seen as someone who brought about a reformation in reaction to both the extreme asceticism that some Hindus practiced and extreme indulgence. He tried both of them and after practicing them he discovered, and this is what makes him their great teacher, what is called the middle way. But keep in mind he did not at any time claim to be a god claimed to be a savior. He was simply a teacher who discovered the middle way. Now, the middle way, and please keep in mind this is a very westernized version, a summary of it, but the middle way consists of four noble truths and then the eightfold path to get to live out those truths. The four noble truths are, number one, life means suffering. Two, the origin of suffering is attachment. Three, the cessation of suffering is attainable. And there, it, the way to, number four, is the path to the cessation of suffering comes by observing the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path consists of, number one, right view. Number two, right intention. Number three, right speech. Number four, right action. Number five, right livelihood. Number six, right effort. Number seven, right mindfulness, and number eight, right concentration. Now, where are these, what are these based on? What are the Buddhist scriptures? These are primarily the teachings and the sayings of the Buddha. Now, once again, Buddhists are very careful to point out that they are not considered holy or infallible because they don't believe Buddha was a god. But they say this is the way to stop, you know, sort of the endless uh, frustration and suffering and sadness and all this by, by following them. There are different collections of the writings of the Buddha by different groups. Some of, the, some of them are called the Triptikatas, the Pali Canon, and the Sutras. And now here is a representative quote from what's called the Diamond Sutra. This is one of their oldest sayings. And this was its kind of an interesting little historical tidbit. Um, this was first block printed in 868. Now you notice I said printed. This is literally one of the first printed books. It was printed though in China. And so it hasn't gotten as much press worldwide, shall we say, as uh, Gutenberg's. But this was early, was printed very early on. Here is the quote from it. 
All conditioned phenomena are like a dream, an illusion, a bubble, a shadow, like dew or flash of lightning. Thus, we shall perceive them. Now, a few more quotes. Uh, these come, one, uh, one other grouping of the sutras, these come from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Please guide all beings from this swamp of cyclic existence. In other words, just like with Hindus, let's get off this wheel of samsara. It's so miserable, we just want it to cease. Another one from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Abandon your notions of the past without attributing a temporal sequence. Cut off your mental associations regarding the future without anticipation. Rest in a spacious modality without clinging to the thoughts of the present. Do not meditate at all since there is nothing upon which to meditate. Instead, revelation will come through undistracted mindfulness since there is nothing by which you can be distract. Now, mindfulness has become a really big deal today, and I'll talk about that more in, in just a minute. But let's just look at the historical evaluation of them. The earliest accounts of Buddha's life were collected some 300 years after his death, and historians believe that probably someone in very similar lived, but we don't really know that about him. Uh, they've debated what's the line between history and legend because we really don't know. No one wrote down anything about him at all close to his his life. It was it was 300 years later. So many Buddhist writings have very different ideas about his reality, but they say it doesn't really matter because he taught what was valuable and what they believe was true and what actually one of the primary websites for the Buddhists, it's called Dharma Folk, says the actual words that the Buddhists spoke go unrecorded. They are all related to us from others who came before us. Now the Pali Canon, this is a very large collection of the different Buddhist writings. It was first published in 1900 in 38 volumes. Now the conclusion of all of this is that it is the writings, the historical scriptures, if you will, of Buddhism are not historical. It, they're admittedly not historical. Buddha himself did not claim to be God, and some debate whether Buddhism is really more of a philosophy than a religion. Now, having said that, I think it's important to understand that the philosophy of Buddhism is extremely appealing. I was reading one commentator who said, and I, I think this is this is very true, that many people today are quote-unquote, functional Buddhists. And what I mean by that is they pick various actions. The Eightfold Path, mindfulness is just a really big deal. You even read about it in uh, business commentaries today. A lot of the different beliefs and, and practices of Buddhists, people will pull out and they will practice these things and they consider themselves spiritual because of that. The Dalai Lama is a very popular representative of the Buddhist faith. He and many others have just written lots and lots of books. Um, some of the titles are The Art of Happiness, Becoming Enlightened, Beyond Religion. These are all books with lots of good and uh, very spiritual advice. Now, you can believe whatever you want to believe. You can follow some of this advice for whatever reasons you want to, but it's quite important to understand that Buddhists themselves would say there is absolutely no historical proof or anchors for their scriptures. Let's now look at the Buddhist view of Jesus. For the Dalai Lama, Jesus was the model of, quote, a spiritually mature, good, and warm-hearted person. 
he would also describe him as he a fully enlightened human being. In uh, Buddhist terms, they call that a bodhisattva. Now, one of the Christian commentaries on this did say that Jesus Christ is not part of the historic Buddhist worldview. Buddhists in the West today generally view Jesus as an enlightened teacher, while Buddhists in Asia believe that he was an avatar, or another, uh, again, that term bodhisattva, but not God. Now, you can believe what you wish, but once again, the historical Jesus interferes because Jesus claimed to be God. We have in numerous historical accounts that that's who he said he was. And it is really patronizing and false to make him into an enlightened human being who said outrageous things and did the things that he did and said that he was the only way to God. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. He claimed to be one with the Father. Not only that, he told others that what they believed about him would decide their eternal destiny. So when Hindus and Buddhists say nice things about Jesus, they're really not complimenting him. They are ignoring what he said about himself and what was recorded by people who knew him very shortly after his death. C.S. Lewis, very famous quote on this that I think is highly appropriate when he talks about how people say Jesus was a good man, he was an enlightened human being, whatever. Um, Lewis says that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. In summary, in our examination of both Hinduism and Buddhism, we've concluded that, first of all, their scriptures consist of many stories, many sayings of leaders, and various writings of content that, though it is extremely appealing in many ways, and what we would term very spiritual today, they do not have historical anchors that move him from the realm of being inspirational. We don't know when many, if not all of them, were written. It's very difficult to identify any of their founders. It is very hard to match any of the writers, any of the characters in their writings with a historical person. Both Buddhists and Hindus admire and have traditional stories about Jesus, but there's no historical evidence in any way or any kind of verification for their beliefs outside of their religions. Both see him as a very good teacher, but not as God. Now, we've looked at these two religions, and let's now jump over around actually several thousand years. Now, this depends on when you start uh, with the beginnings of Hinduism and Buddhism. We're going to skip right over the Christian history for now, and let's now look Islam and Mormonism. Let's now talk about Islam. The word Islam is derived from the Arabic root Salima, 
which means peace, purity, submission, and obedience. In the religious sense, then, Islam means submission to the will of God and obedience to his law. Now, I don't know why this was kind of surprising to me. I'd never really thought about it before, but I realized when I started studying it that Islam was founded much, much later than Christianity. It's a much newer religion. It was Muhammad was born in 570 AD. Now at this time, Christianity had spread throughout Europe and though it had spread into many areas of the known world, there were a lot of problems going on. Christendom had split into the eastern and western regions. Rome was the head city of the western part of Christianity, and Constantinople was the capital of the eastern. Now, Constantinople was where the emperors lived, and this was the power center of the empire. When Constantine made Christianity the favored religion of the empire, it had happened in Constantinople. And yes, he did name the city after himself. Now, Rome had actually fallen to the Goths, barbarians who had taken over the city. Now, they weren't able to keep it for very long because the Emperor Justinian, just shortly before the time that Muhammad was born, he came in and recaptured Rome and reestablished, in many ways, the Roman Empire. But it didn't last. Near the end of his reign, a terrible plague decimated probably 40% of the city of Constantinople and there were constant wars on his border and the entire Roman Empire in many ways was deteriorating. So Muhammad was born during a very turbulent time. Now he lived south near um, near the Holy Lands in, in actually in Arabia and this was as it has always been a real crossroads of commerce and religious systems. Now many of the people surrounding him were polytheistic. They served many gods but there were also influences from the monotheism of both the Jews and the Christians. Now, uh, Muhammad obviously knew quite a bit about them, but he was not, of course, able to study them in depth because he was he was a, a working family. He was also illiterate. He couldn't read any of their scriptures or study them in any way like that. Now, at about the age of 40, uh, I, again, I'm condensing this so much, the Muslims believe that the Quran was verbally revealed from God to Muhammad through the angel Gabriel, or Jibril, as he is sometimes referred to. And this revelation of this verbal um, message from God took place over a period of approximately 23 years. It began in December 609 AD. Now, let's look at the beliefs of Islam, and then we will take an overview of what they're based on, which is pretty much what's in the Quran. The Islamic faith has six articles of faith. The first one is a belief in Allah, the only God. The second is a belief in angels. The third, belief in holy books. Fourth, belief in the prophets. Fifth, belief in the day of judgment. And by the way, on the, in this, there is no real savior. You're pretty much on your own and will be judged according to your own actions. And six, a belief in God's predestination. 
as many uh, people have heard even in the media, the saying, God wills it, is a very important part of their faith. Now, there are then five pillars of faith, and these are the practices of Islam. The first one is the Shahada. This is faith, and it's a prayer acknowledging one God and Muhammad as his prophet. The Salah is the act of prayer five times a day. Zakat is charity, practicing charity. One, as a good Muslim, is supposed to give a percentage to do certain acts of charity. Sawam is fasting, particularly during Ramadan. And the last one is the Hajj. If at all, I believe the Quran says physically possible, one is to make a uh, pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in your life. Now, all of these beliefs are based on the scriptures, which is, of course, the Quran. Muslims consider the Quran to be the only revealed book that has been protected by God from distortion or corruption. Now, this is really important for you to remember. Let me say that again. Muslims consider the Quran to be the only revealed book that has been protected by God from distortion or corruption. Now, according to the traditional narrative, several companions of Muhammad served as scribes writing it down. Again, Muhammad himself was illiterate. He could not read or write. And it was then taken, though, as evidence that the words of the Quran that he spoke came from God. Now, what's in the Quran? The Quran is, uh, as a book, in length, it's comparable to the Gospels. It contains 114 chapters. In Arabic, they're called a surah, and there are various lengths. Now, the first revelations are short and uh, prayerful type verses. The later ones, after Muhammad integrated to Medina, and this was written over a pretty long period of time, they're longer, they're legalistic texts, they're, um, as one of the commentators said, they're much more appropriate to a developing community of belief. Now, this is how the Quran opens. It is a short prayer, and it's considered by many to be one of the most beautiful parts of the Quran. And it says, In the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate, praise belongs to God, Lord of all being, the all-merciful, the all-compassionate, the master of the day of doom, the only we serve. To thee alone we pray for help. Guide us in the straight path, the path of those whom thou hast blessed, not of those whom thou art wrathful, nor of those who go astray. Now, granted, this is a lovely and beautiful passage. The rest of the Quran is very mixed in its content, and I would strongly, strongly encourage you to read it. Um, I, I think you, you'll find it very interesting, and, and actually, I found it to be very different than what I thought it was going to be, although I'm not really sure what I thought it would be. Now, it's available online for free. If you have, you can download it on a Kindle or anything like that. You can, in fact, all of the different scriptures that I've told you about, they're all free online. So I would encourage you to download any of them, read them, look at them, make your own conclusions about it. One thing, though, that is important to note with the Quran, that Muslims believe it should be studied and read in Arabic only. So uh, many of them would say that if, if you're not doing that, you're really not reading it. But I do trust a lot of translators with really all of the works that we're talking about. But let me read you some additional excerpts from the Quran. And keep in mind, 
that it is very important to Muslim theology that every single word in it be absolutely correct. Let me read you, though, a few um, other passages. Surah 72 says, They do blaspheme who say, Allah is Christ, the son of Mary. But said Christ, O children of Israel, they're quoting, theoretically quoting Jesus here, O children of Israel, worship Allah, my Lord and your Lord. Whoever joins other gods with Allah, Allah will forbid him the garden, and the fire will be his abode. There will be, for wrongdoers, be no one to help. They do blaspheme who say, Allah is one of three in a trinity, for there is no God except Allah, except one Allah. If they desist not from their word of blasphemy, verily a grievous penalty will befall the blasphemers among them. God's curse be on the infidels. Evil is that for which they have bartered away their souls. To deny God's own revelation, grudging that he should reveal his bounty to whom he chooses from among his servants. They have incurred God's most inexorable wrath. An ignominious punishment awaits the unbelievers. This is from Surah 289 through 290. Um, then, uh, in Surah 4:34, it says, Men have authority over women, because God has made the one superior to the other, and because they spend their wealth to maintain them. Good women are obedient. As for those from whom you fear disobedience, admonish them, and forsake them in beds apart, and beat them. Yes, I've pulled out verses here and there, but um, I again, I really encourage you to read the whole thing. Uh, the curses on infidels, the attitude towards women, um, the total um, disagreement with what the New Testament talks about with Christ. These examples are just a few, and there are many, many ones that are similar. Again, we're not doing a theological evaluation primarily now. Let's look at the historical evaluation of the Quran. Now there are two areas to consider here. One, the textual uh, transmission of the Quran. It's really pretty good compared to many others, compared to the things that we looked at with both the Hindu and the Buddhist uh, documents. But it should be because they are saying that it is God's exact words and absolutely perfect. Now, the Quran means to recite. And Muhammad was illiterate, so again, he recited his words to his companions that served as scribes. And they either memorized or wrote them down. Now, after Muhammad's, Muhammad's death, there were a number of different groups that had various compilations of them. And they they weren't all the same. They didn't all agree. And so, uh, Caliph Uthman, who was a contemporary of Muhammad, and he was the third leader of the religion. He decided he's the one who is credited with gathering and destroying many of the versions that varied from one another and saying his version was the primary one for the Quran. So we have actually good historical anchors for the transmission of the text and that is pretty much what he came up with is pretty much what we have today. But as to historical truth in general, it is not very good. Um, the A number of the other religions, for example, again, Hinduism and Buddhism, they make absolutely no pretense of being historically accurate. They just say, these are stories, they're stories. You know, yeah, there's no historical basis for them, but it doesn't matter. They are still useful for what they want to use them in in their religion. But for the Quran... It is very important to judge its historical truth because it makes the claim that it is God's only 
uncorrupted revelation. However, it is in reality full of many, many, many just easy to prove historical errors. For example, the Kaaba, which remains the most significant mosque in Islam. The Quran says that it was constructed by Abraham and Ishmael. There is absolutely no proof of that whatsoever that they did that. There are numerous other historical narratives in it that that uh, again they can't be verified outside of the Quran. For example, the Quran talks about encounters with Nimrod of the Bible. It says that uh, Nimrod condemned Abraham to be burned at the stake for trying to turn people of Ur from their idols. And outside of the just chronological inconsistencies, one of the um, it, it's just there's there's no basis for it. One of their most critical things is as far as um, Christians and historians would say, as a historical error is where uh, the Muslims believe that Ishmael, not Isaac, was the one who Abraham attempted to sacrifice. Abraham, of course, is a very important figure in Islamic, in, in the whole Islamic religion of course, being one of what are what are normally labeled the three Abrahamic religion, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. But there are so many inaccuracies in the Quran's view of Abraham's life. The one about Ishmael, not Isaac as the one sacrificed, is just one of them. But keep in mind, just evaluating it historically, the Quran was written over 1,800 years after the Torah was composed. The Torah, in that we have the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that both Christians and Jews claim as scripture. Now, we believe that these are much more accurate accounts of Abraham's life. The Jewish biblical account was accepted as historical by the Jews throughout all of their history and continuing today that Isaac was the son who was sacrificed. However, here is what the Quran says. Then, when Ishmael reached the age of serious work, Abraham said, O my son, I see in vision that I offer thee in sacrifice. Now see what is in thy view. The son said, O my father, do as thou art commanded. Thou wilt find me, if Allah so wills, one practicing patience and constancy. So when they had both submitted their wills to Allah, and he laid him prostrate on his forehead for sacrifice, we called out to him, O Abraham, thou hast already fulfilled the vision. Thus indeed do we reward those who do right. Now, if that was historically accurate, that would invalidate 1,800 years of Jewish history with a completely unsupported view of Abraham's life. But even more concerning than the views of Abraham is the Islamic view of Jesus. Now, it, it is interesting that Jesus is viewed as one of many in a list of prophets that, and, uh, that include Adam, Noah, Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Moses, Mary, interestingly enough, and Jesus, and then finally, of course, Muhammad is seen as the final prophet. However, the Quran denies Jesus, and he's often called Isha in that, as God, and it also, of course, denies the Trinity. In Surah 4171, it said, O followers of the book, do not exceed in the limits of your religion, and do not speak lies against Allah, but speak the truth. The Messiah 
Isha, the son of Miriam, is only an apostle of Allah, and the word he communicated to Miriam and a spirit from him. Believe therefore in Allah and in his apostles, and do not say three. Desist, it is better for you. Allah is only one God, far be it from his glory that he should have a son. However, in the New Testament, which if you just view it, don't even think about it as a divinely inspired piece, but that it was an accurate account of what happened in Jesus' life, written very, very shortly after his death. It accords a number of instances where God, speaking from heaven, said, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Christians take this and many other passages to show that, at least in their view, that God did consider Jesus his son. Now, again, you can argue with that however you want to, but historically, you take a a um, book that was written right after the events or someone commenting on it over 600 years later, one should weigh perhaps the one that happened closest to it, give it a little bit more weight. Now, in addition, but even more than that, one of the things that is very problematic in the Quran, as far as history is concerned, is it denies the reality of Christ's crucifixion. In Surah 4157, it says, They killed him not, nor crucified him. But so it was made to appear to them, for of a surety they killed him not. And um, one Christian author in commenting on this said, In reality, the fatal suffering of Jesus Jesus Christ, as recounted in the New Testament, is one of the most well-established facts of ancient history. Even in today's modern age of scientific enlightenment, there is a virtual consensus among New Testament scholars, both conservative and liberal, that Jesus died on a Roman cross. Now, we can all disagree about the meaning of what happened. You don't have to, if you're, if you're not a Christian, say that that is what paid the penalty for our sins. But historically, there is extensive documentation and validation that this event did occur. In summary, then, and I've just given you a few examples, the Quran, instead of being, as is claimed, infallible, it contains many instances that are in direct contradiction of Jewish history, biblical history, and secular world history. This is a big problem for Islam because unlike Hinduism and Buddhism that make absolutely no claims about historical truth, it's just these are the traditions that have come down to us, that's what they are. Islam states that every word in the Quran is true. And so this is a huge challenge. But we can't dwell on that. We have to move along, and we are now going to talk about the Mormon Church. The Mormon Church is the most recent of the religions that we will talk about, and it was founded by Joseph Smith. Began It began with visions from an angel, Moroni, who gave him a set of golden tablets to translate. Now, he believed at the time that all current religions were corrupt, and he was sent to restore the church. Now, little parentheses here. Some people, when I first start teaching this, they go, wait a minute. 
We've kind of heard that before. An angel comes and gives a uh, a vision and has this new doctrine, this, these new scriptures, and the angel also says all other current religions are corrupt. Isn't that kind of the same thing that happened with the start of Islam? And yes, it is. It's, it's very interesting, and I don't want to go down that bunny trail a whole lot, but uh, the two, both Islam and the Mormon Church, have very, very similar stories, or and, and actually it's history as far as we know these things did something like this happen, but that they both were founded by one individual who got some sort of visions, and they were given a new type of scripture and were told all other religions at the time were corrupt. So then, what do Mormons believe? What is their idea of salvation? Now, this is where it gets really, really tricky because many Mormons will tell you, well, we believe all of the same things that that other Christians do. We're just another denomination. That is simply not correct. To understand what I mean, we need to do two things. We will, in just a few minutes, be talking about their scriptures that their beliefs are based on, and they are very different than simply the the Christian Bible. But also, too, right from the start, on any time that you look at, at Mormon material, you must understand how they define different terms. This is one of the most important things when you're analyzing the Mormon Church is though they use many of the same terms, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, salvation, every single one of these terms have completely different meanings to the Mormon church than they do to the traditional historical Christian church. I taught a number of years ago, I taught an almost year-long analysis on the beliefs of the Mormon church purely from a biblical and historical viewpoint. And I, I learned a lot on that. I hope to, um, I have a lot of that on a website that I'll, I'll link you to, and I'll have some um, information on that on Bible 805. <laughs> Not anytime, probably really soon, because I'm just really wanting to get a lot of stuff together for the first of the year so we can read through the Bible. But I will get that on there. But um when I talk about the historical Christian church, and forgive that little little bunny trail there, I'm talking about the church that has adhered to the classic historical creeds of Christianity. This is what Mormonism departs from greatly, in addition to departing from the various scriptures, which we'll, we'll talk about in just a few minutes. In the historical Christian faith, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For the Mormon, the highest level of salvation in the celestial kingdom, where basically you become a god and you continuously have children throughout all eternity that populates your world or worlds, first of all, you must be a Mormon. This highest level of exaltation will not happen if you are not a Mormon. You must be baptized in the church. You must be married in the church. You must follow all the rules and regulations of the church. Now, I realize that, again, I'm, I'm probably opening up a big can of worms and people will say, well, what about this and what about that? Can't answer those now, um, but I will give some links where I go into it more. And there's some just really good things that I will link you to. But let's just look at where the Mormons get these views. First of all, let's look at the, the Mormon scriptures. They actually have four scriptures. Now, 
First of all, they do accept the Bible, but only the King James Bible and the phrase that they use only insofar as it is correctly translated. However, Joseph Smith did not believe that hardly any of it was correctly translated or trans uh, well translated and passed down he believed that the catholic church had corrupted it and changed so many passages that it couldn't be trusted and mormon missionaries will say this today however that is something that is patently false and extremely easy to disprove it's just not true as the most basic study of the transmission of the Bible document shows. Now again you might not want to believe what the Bible says but you cannot say that the text was corrupted. Just one simple example of this something most people have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. What are the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls we know archaeologically were written before the time of Christ. They were um, stored away probably during the destruction of Jerusalem, which was in 70 AD, but most of them were written down before the time of Christ, so, you know, over 2,000 years ago. When they were discovered, the reason it was such a big deal when they discovered them and saw what was on the scrolls is because the, for example, one of the books that they had, the complete book of the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah that they ha they discovered that was passed down around the time of Christ is virtually absolutely identical with a few little tiny, um, you know, scribal errors to the book, the Hebrew book of Isaiah that we have today. And that and many you know, just thousands of other copies of manuscripts and things that we have show that as the scribes copied the different scriptures, they were so incredibly accurate that we can go back to very close to when they were actually written and trust the text that we have today. Again, I'm not saying that that is why you should believe it's from God, but you cannot credibly say that they were corrupted because they simply weren't. The second book is the Book of Mormon, or Another Testament of Jesus Christ. Now, this is theoretically, it was an English translation of these golden plates that Joseph Smith, uh, that were given to him by this angel. Now, this reflects the belief that Jesus Christ came to America after his resurrection and preached to an indigenous group of people there, and it talks about their battles and all of the things that happened to them. Most people think that in the Book of Mormon is where you get the beliefs of the Mormon Church, and that's really not true. It's just this uh, pretty much the story about these ancient people, and we'll comment on that in just a few more minutes. The third uh, piece of their scriptures is something called the Doctrine and Covenants, and this is where you really get what people in the Mormon Church actually believe. This is a collection of revelations and inspired declarations, starting with Joseph Smith and other key men in the church, what they wrote. The fourth one is something called the Pearl of Great Price. And what the Pearl of Great Price is, is this is something that is composed of theoretically two lost books of the Bible, the Book of Moses and the Book of Abraham, and uh, some other miscellaneous materials. Now, let me read you a few excerpts from Doctrine and Covenants, and I will also of the other other pieces. Now, again, this is where the doctrines of celestial marriage, plural marriage, 
baptism of the dead, exaltation, that's where all of these things come in. Um, let me just read you a few excerpts from this. Uh, Verily I say to you, if a man marry a wife by my word, which is my law, and by the new and everlasting covenant, you will come forth in the first resurrection, and shall inherit thrones, kingdoms, principalities, and powers, dominions, and they shall pass by the angels and the gods, which are set there, to their exaltation and glory in all things, as hath been sealed upon their heads, which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of of seeds for ever and ever. They shall be gods, because they have no end. Therefore they shall be from everlasting to everlasting, because they continue. They shall be above all, because all things are subject to them. Then they shall be gods, because they have all power, and the angels are subject to them. Verily, verily, I say to you, except you abide by my law, you cannot attain to this glory. So this is, is the whole idea of um, exaltation of human beings to become godlike and have the continuation of seeds forever and ever just means more and more and more children forever and ever. One of the commentaries on Doctrine and Covenants, this is by uh, a gentleman, <clears throat> excuse me, Jess Christensen from the Institute of Religion at Utah State University was commenting on Doctrine and Covenants and the doctrine in there that Lucifer and Jesus were brothers. And here's his comment on it, and he's using Doctrine and Covenants to support his comment. He said, On first hearing the doctrine that Lucifer and our Lord Jesus Christ are brothers may seem surprising to some, especially to those unacquainted with latter-day revelations, in other words, Mormon teaching. But both the scriptures and the prophets affirm that Jesus Christ and Lucifer, and it's affirmed in Doctrine and Covenants, are indeed offspring of our Heavenly Father, and therefore, as spirit brothers, Jesus Christ was with the Father from the beginning. Lucifer, too, was an angel who was in authority in the presence of God, a son of the morning. Both Lucifer and Jesus were strong leaders with great knowledge and influence, but as the firstborn of the Father, Jesus was Lucifer's older brother. This, of course, is in direct contradiction to the the New Testament teachings that Jesus is eternal God and that Lucifer, Satan, is a created being. But that particular belief is repeated numerous times in Doctrine and Covenants. Now let's look at the Book of Mormon. In the Book of Mormon, um, just a direct quote out of it, and now I, Mormon, being about to deliver up the record which I have been making into the hands of my son Moroni, behold, I have witnessed almost all the destruction of my people, the Nephites. And it, then uh, jumping ahead, and it came to pass that the armies of the Lamanites in all the land of Zaramahala, among all the people who belonged to King Benjamin, so that King Benjamin had continual peace all the remainder of his days. And it came to pass that he had three sons, and he called their names Mosiah, Helorim, and Helamon. Now, just to historically evaluate the Book of Mormon, now let me just jump back. Doctrine and Covenants, we know that those were written by Mormon leaders. We might debate their theology, but we can say, yes, that's what they wrote down, and that, you know, they've transmitted it to us. On the Book of Mormon, it sounds a lot like the King James Bible when you read it, and there are stories and bits and pieces of the Old Testament pulled out of it. However, there is not one single thing that has been historically or archaeologically or in any way verified on anything in the Book of Mormon. 
And this is something that is, of course, very frustrating to Mormons. They've spent literally millions and millions of dollars trying to find these places or the people or some of the things that were mentioned or even trying to figure out where the lands themselves are. And there is no, zero, none, absolutely no evidence for it. I was talking about earlier how it's really important to be able to tell where something happened. And you would think that this would be one of the most basic criteria. But in the Book of Mormon, there is absolutely no geographical support for it at all. I often remind my classes at church that our Bible has maps. We take that for granted. Of course our Bible has maps. Well, we forget the extraordinary significance in in Hinduism. In the writings of Hinduism and Buddhism, there are no maps because, again, these the stories and things took place, they're not sure where. And so we can't be terribly specific about that. In the Book of Mormon, there aren't any maps that relate to anything in the real world. But in the biblical account in the Old and New Testament, we have maps. We can go to the places where Abraham was, where the prophets spoke, where the kings lived. We can go to all of these places in the New Testament. We know exactly where Jesus lived, where he traveled to, where Paul preached. We have the geographical evidence that all of these things took place in a real time and place. The Book of Mormon does not have that. Now, but wait, what if you found an ancient manuscript that actually verified the teachings of the church, something that actually talked about in some of the, uh, again, Mormon beliefs, pre-existence of souls and the planet Kolob, which is, is very important in their faith. Now, that's what the church, the Mormon church, thought they had because Joseph Smith talked about an ancient piece of papyri that he had purchased from a traveling mummy exhibit, and he translated it, and it became part of the Pearl of Great Price, which is one of their foundational documents. And it's a very important one because it teaches the idea that God organized eternal elements to create the universe. Um, it also talks about the exaltation of humanity, of pre-mortal existence, of the first and second estates, and the plurality, plurality of the gods. Now, unfortunately, they thought it was lost in the great Chicago fire. But then it was rediscovered in 1966, and you can just go online, you can see it today. Um, you can just just go online, look it up on Wikipedia, and you can see the document. Now, unfortunately for the Mormon church, what Joseph Smith said was on the document it has absolutely nothing to do with what it really is. It was an Egyptian funerary text and where he talks about something being the angel of the Lord actually in the true Egyptian translation it was Osiris and when he talks about Abraham fastened on the altar um, it was again about Osiris and the Egyptian god Anubis. Every Basically everything that Joseph Smith said it said he completely made up. This is, is one might say, rather embarrassing. Okay, now for our historical summary from the Mormon scriptures. Their view of the Bible is totally incorrect historically in their evaluation that the text was corrupted. It has not been. Um, again, they can choose to not believe it, not accept certain things in it, but you cannot say it was corrupted because it wasn't. 
Doctrine and Covenants has changed significantly over the years. The Book of Mormon, there is absolutely no historical or geographical evidence that any of the places or people or events recorded in it existed. The Pearl of Great Price, parts of it are based on proven forgery. However, there's always a however, according to Mormon doctrine, this lack of historical anchors is not important in many ways because they consider a conviction of truth is something else entirely. For the Mormon Church, it's based on what was known as a burning in the bosom, for more modern terms, a real emotional reaction that often Mormon missionaries now, when they talk to someone and they're losing on an argument or some of the stuff may not make sense or whatever, they will say, well, just pray about it and see how you feel. And here's where this concept comes from. This is really important to understand. In Doctrine and Covenants, it says, Behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosoms shall burn within you. I guess this is God speaking. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. But if it be not right, you shall have no such feelings, but you shall have a stupor of thought that shall cause you to forget the thing which is wrong. Therefore you cannot write that which is sacred, save it be given you from me. Now the Institute for Religious Research explains the whole idea of the burning of the bosom in this way. According to Mormons, this passage and other passages in both the LDS scriptures and the Bible reveal the God-ordained way in which sincere secret of truth are to know with certainty that something is true. The experience of an internal feeling that Mormons often describe as a burning convinces them that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God, and that the LDS Church is the true Church of God today. This spiritual witness, which Mormons assert comes from the Holy Ghost, is of special importance to their faith in the Book of Mormon. The LDS Apologetics Organization defends its belief by citing doctrine and covenants, and then here's another passage from that. Moreover, one is entitled to and should receive a spiritual witness from the Holy Ghost about the truthfulness of the scriptures, including the Bible and the Book of Mormon, before they accept them as true. This is frequently referred to by some as a burning in the bosom, using the phrase from doctrine and covenants. It's your choice. You can either base your faith emotional feelings or on historical anchors. Personally, I do not trust my emotions or feelings. If I did, if I all my actions were based on that, I would eat lots of chocolate and I would weigh probably 300 pounds. Now, I don't mean to uh, be snarky about that and I would also just scream at people a lot because I feel like screaming at people a lot. I need something outside myself as a guide for my behavior, and for my eternal future. And I think simply to ascribe something to just how you feel to know if it's right or not, and that too, by the way, can change. One day you might feel something's right, the next day it's wrong. Our emotions fluctuate so tremendously. I personally feel that that's that's very, very thin ice to be basing your life on. Now let's look at the Mormon view of Jesus. The Mormons believe, based on their scriptures, that Jesus is actually a separate God from God the Father or Elohim. They believe that he was created as a spirit child 
by the father and mother in the celestial heavens, and that he is the elder brother of all man and of all spirit beings, including Lucifer. Remember how I read you that part earlier where it talked about him being the older brother of Lucifer. They also believe that his body was created through a sexual union between Elohim and Mary. They also believe that he was married here on earth. After his resurrection, they believe that he came to America and preached to the people at that time, and this is a story that's recorded in the Book of Mormon. They also believe that his death on the cross does not provide full atonement for all sin, but that it does provide everyone with a resurrection. And then where you are after that resurrection, whether you go to the highest heaven, an exaltation, or whether you're in one of the lower levels, totally depends not on Jesus, but on how well you adhere to the various beliefs, the doctrine, and the practices of the Mormon Church. The thing that's important, though, through all of this is to recognize that the Mormon Jesus is a totally, totally different being than the Jesus of the Bible and of history. Now, this makes the Mormon Church, in many ways in their belief systems, much more dangerous than some of the other ones that we talked about, where Hinduism, Buddhism, even Islam will consider Jesus to be a good person, but they don't say that he's God. And so, it's easy to say, well, their view of Jesus is false. However, the Mormon Church, a lot of it, again, because they give different definitions to the same terms, it's very important to understand that when they talk about about Jesus. They're talking about the spirit brother of Lucifer. They're talking about someone who was physically born of of a sexual union. They're talking about things that do not define the historical Jesus. Now, many Mormons even would disagree and say, no, 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 no. He's not. He's the same one as the Jesus in the Bible. But that's just not true. Simply reading their documents shows that it isn't. The Jesus of the Bible never came to America and preached to the inhabitants of it. The Jesus of the Bible was not the spirit brother of Lucifer. And you have two totally different entities. Now, once again, it is your choice which one you believe in, but you cannot say that based on the history of the documents and a careful reading of the documents of each church that Jesus is the same. You must decide which set of documents you believe. And I, for one, must say that I choose the historical Jesus of the Bible. With that, we finish up our summary of the different religions, and I do thank you for hanging in there with me. I now want to give just a little bit of an overview of what I've talked about, and then a few applications for you, and we can go on into our next lesson. This has been incredibly brief. I trust what I've shared with you is true and based on fact, but there is, of course, so much more to learn from each of these world religions. Please, don't be a faith coward. Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, Islam, go online, look at their scriptures, read them, study them, look up historical information about them, and I truly believe that if you do that, you will see how unique the Christian Bible is. 
because all of the other religions, all or in part, are based on primarily the words of their leaders as recorded through tradition and legend. There are few, if any, historical anchors, locations, people, dates, words that are a foundation for the beliefs, and much of what they say is in direct contradiction to historical facts. Now, Hinduism and Buddhism make absolutely no claims to be historical. They just say, you know, this is what we've decided we're going to believe, and that's what we believe. The Mormon Church, though, and Islam, though they have some things that we can tie to history, we know when they were founded, who the founders were, those kinds of things, their views about Jesus are in direct contradiction to actual facts that we have in history. Now, Christianity, in contrast, the Christian Bible, our scriptural documents are anchored to to real history, real geography, and there is real archaeological support of biblical beliefs. Now, I've only given you a few examples here and there. In the coming lessons, I'm going to give you many, many more of them. The next series that we're going to do, is, it's still part of this, this series on history and truth, I'm going to show you how we got our English Bible. I'm going to give you an overview of the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, and the New Testament, and talk about world history and how we have different historical anchors, or in the case of the Apocrypha, the lack thereof, and why these are so important in how we can trust our scriptures. Then I will go into what is called canonicity, which is why we have the books that we have in the Bible. And then finally, I'm going to go through the process of how we got the Bible from the Greek and Hebrew to the English Bible that we have today. All of this is foundation for the following study, which is where we are going to read through the Bible in a year in chronological order. If you haven't done this before, I cannot, cannot, cannot emphasize enough how important it is for you to do it. It will literally change your life. It will give you a confidence in and an understanding of the Word of God like you have never had before. What we've learned so far in our study, though, today is that the Christian Bible, unlike any other religious document, is anchored to real history. But even more than that, in John 1, it tells us, And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Christianity claims that the eternal God became flesh and blood in a real place, in a real time, at the end that the information written about Him is true. No other religion has the historical anchors that Christianity has. Now, these historical anchors, of course, do not compel belief, but they do provide a foundation for serious consideration of the Christian faith. Now, just a few final application notes. Don't be too agreeable, even when it's difficult. This is much more than simply a philosophical discussion, because I truly believe that the eternal destinies of people all over the world and of our friends and neighbors depend on which of these religions we put our faith and trust in. Please carefully evaluate the truth of the scriptures that you believe in that you share with people. Also be aware of what I, I talked about earlier, the functional practice of false religions in life and culture. In other words, what, what many people, it's you, you might not say you're a Buddhist, but you practice mindfulness and Zen and whatever it is, this sort of combination of this vague spirituality 
that you've made up because it makes you feel good and, and that, that's what you want to do. This is not a good idea. Putting off a decision on who you are going to trust your life with, what religion you're going to believe in, has ultimately very serious consequences. If you are a believer in Jesus, do follow the words of Scripture where it says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and charts and different things that I have on Bible 805. I'm still working on getting this in a final format, but there will be useful things on that site. Now until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, a writer, and a teacher for Jesus, and I want to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing that you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.